Hi, welcome to another episode of Unlocking the Vault with Dan Lenstead. I'm Cindy Meyerson. I'm sort of your host this evening. So tonight we're going to be talking about migrating to a data vault while supporting the business. So suppose you have a company and they want to move off of their existing data warehouse to a data vault methodology. How can I do that in such a way that it keeps my business moving along without just turning off the old environment? How do we do that? Well, we've got a lot of good content for that. There's there's a set of prescriptive steps and there's a lot more steps than what we're going to cover tonight. But we're going to try to give you the high level at the business side between the C-level, the director level, and the scrum master level. We're going to try to give you some guidance at the major step to understand how to do this kind of a transition. The first one is have a modular approach. Um, Definitely don't try to replace your entire legacy system all at once. Never boil the ocean. That has never turned out well for any any system or any solution that I've ever seen or heard of in the 30 years plus years that I've been doing IT. Um, but uh, And for the data vault, it's no different. There's another piece to that, and that is actually have a C-level issue a decree that absolutely no new development will be allowed. In other words, freeze the legacy system, except for emergency fixes to existing functionality. And I know that sounds really harsh and that sounds like, ouch, I don't really want to do that. But this is absolutely vital because if you don't do that, if you don't have that decree issued, then what happens is the development teams get pulled back like a black hole. They get sucked back into the black hole to build and patch and fix and the old system. And then no one's working on the new system. No one's working on the data vault. And, and that's a that's a big, big, big problem. Do you have any thoughts on on the modular approach or, or the, the decree issuance? Yeah, I have definitely been in a project where it was, it's like weaning a baby, <laughs> you know? Um, so you're trying to get people off the legacy and they're just not comfortable. Part of that is tied to the build team for the new solution for the data vault. I would say being sensitive to the fact that they need to be very transparent in what they're doing. And also in this modular approach, when you start to produce outcomes, you're actually auditing those outcomes against what has already been developed in the past so that the users are comfortable that not only are you taking a different approach, And with that different approach, an improvement in performance, perhaps getting the data loaded faster, but they can trust the data going into that system, that that idea of trustworthiness from their legacy capability to this new capability, I think is key so that they actually feel comfortable that they can trust what's being built. And I believe transparency and communication, collaborating with the users and testing is a, is a huge part of that. Absolutely. You've, you've got to have collaboration and transparency. One of the things I wanted to mention here with the modular approach is that as executives, directors, and scrum leaders, you 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 got to get comfortable. And what I mean by that is you will run both solutions in parallel until the new, until the new DV warehouse provides the functionality your company needs. But there's another tack to this in terms of getting started. One of them is to say, 
rebuild the existing functionality using the new data vault methodology and solution, and then match, as you just described, match. And eventually that's got to happen. The other one is to take a longstanding problem that the old system doesn't solve or can't solve or hasn't solved in years that it's been in operation and build that one chunk first so that you have vital information flowing out of the new component, out of the new data vault solution right off the bat. And then this makes it a critical system right from the start. So if you take these longstanding poles that haven't been solved and you focus on one, two, or three of those right out of the gate and you solve those, that takes a little bit of the pressure off of the initial team to provide proof that this is the right way to go because clearly it solved problems that that couldn't be solved in the old system at all. And then once you have some of that pressure off, in other words, hey, look, here's a working system solving new problems. It is now critical to the business. It's providing great reporting and all that other stuff, BI and analytics. Then you can turn around and focus on replicating some of the stuff that sits in the legacy system and moving that one chunk at a time. And by modular, we mean have the appropriate scope. Again, don't boil the ocean, scope it down to a single business function or a business unit or a set of business answers and make sure that the team is delivering in two-week sprints. And by delivery, I mean all the way through to the BI layer. So acquire the data, load the data, move the data through the vault, engineer it, architect it, process it, and get it out into the BI layers, at least in a development sense. And then on top of that development element is where they can add the QA and the testing. And those are different or separate sprints. So this is what I would have to say. So Cindy, what do you think about that approach? And do you have any thoughts on what the employees need to do in order to get there? Well, I think that's definitely, it's, first of all, it's a rational approach, (laughs) not boiling the ocean and setting the expectation that The legacy system will need to be maintained until such time as everything has been transitioned over. Part of that, too, that will also give you time to get your teams trained. In other words, you're not having to surge on training up front, but as you begin to move toward Data Vault, you can start with a smaller team. Maybe they're your strike team, right? They're your strategic team to get things going, and you get them trained in Data Vault. Then as you begin to migrate parts of the system over, you train and add to that SWAT team or that strike team so that the remainder of your development assets, your resources, are comfortable also with data vault. They've seen it work for a while while somebody's building something else. They begin to you know, stick their noses in, hey, what are you doing? And they get a little bit of a taste of it. Then they go to training because they begin to see the successes that are coming out. You know, as you're answering these questions, I love that idea of, you know, answer a question with a new data vault solution that has never been able to be answered before. I think that is extremely that's strategic. But employee training, when you take this approach, this modular approach, means that as you're building out new capacity or capability in, in your new data vault and transitioning that off of your legacy system, that you're training these teams to be able to take that on um, a little at a time. And then the other thing, obviously, is, you know, as part of that, as you're rolling it out, 
you start looking at, you know, the ways of working. And Dan, I mean, I know you've done a lot of work, you know, in the methodology around the wow of Data Vault with regard to, you know, the agile approaches. Um, what do you think about how a team would establish internal best practices and ways of working and establishing those things? What kind of things might they do? I've worked with lots of different corporations over the years to try and and get a feel for what is repeatable, regardless of line of business or business function, you know, banks, healthcare, insurance, and so on. What I'm what I'm going to describe to you is a generalized answer that basically works across the board if you do it right. Um, what I want to say is, if you start with a small focused team. You can get them trained and they will stick to the standards because they're the first one out of the gate. The eyes, all eyes are on them to do it well and to do it right. Of course, the the manager or the director has a lot riding on this for success. And it takes a bit of time to, you know, learn how to climb that mountain, what gear you need. And as you go, you learn, right? You become experienced. Really at the heart of that experience is discipline agile. So if you take the discipline agile approach, which is from Scott Ambler and Mark Lines, and you apply it, you really can find that the data vault methodology and the implementation standards that we give you, which are a prescriptive set of implementation standards and guidelines, i.e. best practices, that basically help your team accelerate their motion, the team begins to learn. And what they should be doing is documenting their learnings, documenting their findings. And in most cases, what we've done is we've set up a corporate wiki. And this can be Confluence. In most companies and most government agencies I've worked in, Confluence seems to be the thing uh, that people like to use for this kind of thing. And it, it talks to JIRA as well. And of course, JIRA is highly configurable. In fact, one of the banks I was working at when we started with five people and a single director uh, we built something in a month or two together that their team then defined, oh, I want to say 100 pages of best practices within the organization that the rest of the development teams were going to follow. And then, of course, we trained more teams and trained more directors and trained more scrum managers. And I don't want to leave the directors out of the training. The directors need to understand what's being built and why it's important so that the language barriers are broken down when someone escalates an issue. You start with a small team and then you can scale out, right? And that's the whole nature of it. Distributed teams, distributed governance, that's all part of discipline agile. And you'll see these things Funny enough, you'll see these things in mesh as well. They're defined in data mesh, cross-pollinated teams where you've got multiple skill sets on a single team to get delivery done. And that's how that works. But every team you train has to be aware of the corporate wiki, has to be aware of the best practices and the design guidelines that the initial team has written. It doesn't mean that these guidelines or best practices are written in stone. And that's a difference between standards and best practices. The best practices are just that. They're living, breathing best practices that can and should be changed as the company moves. As the company learns new things, uh, you will adjust your best practices and it should be done in a consensus manner so that everyone agrees and is comfortable with the best practice. The standards, not so. 
Standards are set in stone. Standards are designed to be run the way they're run. And that those standards are really what are the foundation stones for the agility, the foundation stones for the modeling and the methodology and the architecture, the foundation stones that keep things moving forward at a good pace because they're repeatable, they're consistent, they're fault tolerant, they're redundant. All the testing has been done to prove that out. So this is sort of what we do with the new ways of working is we say, okay, let's look at as a small strike team, let's look at what's not working in the organization today from a best practice perspective, and let's modify those together. That isn't done in a vacuum. That's done with a data vault coach or an advisor. And that's that's something that's important. This particular bank that I helped engaged me for over seven years. Now, I wasn't there. You might say, oh, my God, I wasn't there for seven years straight. I was there for the first month of initiation and startup and the first build cycle. I came back six months later and trained probably a, a 50 or 100 more people. By the end of year one, they had grown from seven people and one team to over 50 teams of 10 people each. Yeah, 500 people in IT. It was amazing. And then the second year, they brought me back six months later. And so it was about every six months I was there for two weeks or so. It was halfway around the world in Australia. So we'll just leave it at that. But it's important to have a coach and not just engage training up front and not just engage the coach up front, but engage the coach for assessments down the road as your team goes, learns and builds. And like, like everything else, you know, it's like riding a bicycle. Eventually, the training wheels have to come off. And sometimes right after the train wheels off, sometimes you fall and you skin your knees. Well, you got to get back up, but you got to also treat the skinned knees and you have to know how to repair the knees, put a Band-Aid on them, clean the cut, that kind of thing. And that's what coaches are for, to make sure that you're not only on the right guidelines, but that your ways of working continue to evolve in the right direction. The last thing you want is to say, well, you know, we got all our teams trained in the first month. Now we're running fine. So why do we need a coach? We just don't. We'll just run for the next three years. And then two years go by and you wonder why, why is this thing off the rails? Well, that's what can happen if you don't engage a coach. And again, it's it may be a long-term coaching process, but it doesn't mean full time. So I want to make that absolutely clear. But this is all part of the methodology aspects and the new ways of working. It's it's working with a coach to be successful. I kind of liken this to uh, Software Engineering Institute, the CMMI layers. You don't just wake up one morning and, and become CMMI level five. And that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a couple of years to get to CMMI level five. And on top of that, you know, you want to engage a CMMI coach to make sure that you're going the right directions. So the data vault is really no different because it is a solution, being a solution. It makes sense. And the coach actually can help you reduce your costs or manage your costs and absolutely helps you manage your risk along the way of potential failure or uh, problematic implementations that just suck money down a, a black hole. So what do you think about some of this stuff? I know you work, Cindy, in, in some true agile development and rapid release in government agencies. What did you notice in some of these agencies that where some of the sticking points were that you had to get them to give up? 
or change one ways. Of the, the toughest things I've, I've run into, honestly, is I would say the agile frameworks that tend to be pending on the uh, coaches, the agile coaches that are running them. They can be somewhat rigid. I've seen that actually slow teams down uh, where framework dictates certain meetings and certain celebrations and things of that nature. And the execution of the Agile method begins to take precedence over the team's requirement for delivery. It can be extremely frustrating. I have been part of that where uh, you're in the middle of coding, your head's down, you're in the zone, and ding, 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 you got a meeting. (laughs) And it is the most distracting, frustrating angering thing that can happen when you're coding you just don't want to go and it's hard when you're in a groove it's hard to break the day up like that so I'm not a big fan personally of of a lot of meetings you know technically we should have a you know 15 minute stand up in the morning and that should be good to go Uh, and I just felt like at least on this one project like every other day there was this bloody group meeting and we all had to be there and of course, it's in the middle of the day when we're, you know, really we've had a good morning of getting our heads around what the tasks are, focusing, starting to code, and then, you know, ding, 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 time to go. It was just so incredibly frustrating. So I would just say that's one aspect. The other thing is the rigidity around saying that perhaps our, our sprints are three weeks, period, and or our sprints are four weeks, Sticking to that cadence, not having any flexibility in the cadence. The reason I bring that up is because in a development team for a warehouse, there are certain tasks that are required that honestly, I believe should be in their own sprint. And you and I have talked about this, but things like data acquisition, for example, things like data profiling sometimes. And the reason we we have talked about this, the reason I feel it's important that these things be pulled out of the standard sprint of, of a single sprint release is that some of these things can take on a life of their own. Uh, I know in one instance, we were going after a data set that was external to uh, our mission and it had been put into the sprint as part of that release. And I fought to have that taken out and I, and I did. We put it on its own sprint or in its own release. And as it turned out, I was on that project for six years. We did not get our hands on that data set until about six months before I left the project. You run into these things where your team does not have control over some of the data that they need to acquire during a sprint. In addition, when you're looking at profiling, we talk about the agile approach or discipline of collaboration as part of the agile method. That means in your profiling, you need to be pulling the business in to help you with your profiling efforts. Uh, And so what would happen is we would be reliant on a subject matter expert, a business user who simply wasn't available. And having not being able to profile that data with the, the business was an inhibitor to our ability to move forward. So things like data profiling where you're reliant on, you know, someone who's outside your team, you're basically borrowing a resource from the business. You have data sets that you don't own. Those are things that I think uh, need to go out and be pulled out of the sprint lifecycle and be on their own, even their own cadence, for example. Something else that we add into the sprint and maybe we put dedicate two weeks to Uh, a data acquisition piece. 
The other thing I would say where I've seen things get really thrown off is when you have folks that want to ask some of your developers to do them a favor, you have pet peeves. And usually these, these folks are management people. And, you know, you have a director that while they say they're agile, they feel absolutely no remorse in coming up to some of your developers or emailing some of your developers and asking them to take on a project that is not within the sprint. It's not part of what you're releasing. And the pressure of having someone from upper management actually request your time and ask for a favor it's very hard to say no to that if, when you're a developer. So I, I did have that situation. Um, I was coaching a, our agile scrum master. She was having a difficult time because a couple of the you know strong developers were being constantly pulled off. What I had her do, I told them we're going to we're going to create a special project in, in Jira and we're going to call this a drive by bucket. And every time anybody gets a drive-by shooting in the hallway or someone comes by your desk, you're going to put the task that you've been asked to do into the drive-by bucket. And that way, our Agile, uh, our Scrum Master actually had visibility on what the team was being asked to do. And so when we came to delivery uh, on the delivery deadline for the sprint and the release, if things weren't done she could go back and say, well, this is how much time was spent on this special project that you asked for. And as a result of that, the impact was we couldn't deliver what we said we would deliver. And pretty soon that behavior stopped. Nobody wanted anything in the drive-by bucket, but it helped us get control back to our scrum lead so that she could manage the resources. And we were able to actually begin to change the behavior of management so that when they said, yes, we're agile, they actually were themselves behaving in an agile fashion. Yeah, that's really cool. Drive by, do me a favor requirements. <laughs> I, you know, I can't stand those things. This speaks to the necessity of having a dedicated team. Your teams can be distributed. Your teams can be self-organizing and should be. Your teams should be managed and, and monitored and they should be free to monitor their own JIRA. You shouldn't have to have an all teams meeting, you know, that's supposed to be 15 minutes and ends up being an hour and a half because you've got 50 people in there. We never did that. We had the directors meet. We had the, the scrum masters meet once a week to talk about what was going on across their teams, but they didn't meet more than once a week. Other than that, they were all self-organizing. And this idea of a dynamic sprint cycle, I think is really important to call out. We talk about two-week iterations. In reality, we have people who are good at the data vault methodology doing two-day and even four-hour iterations. I like to call them four-hour sprints, but then my buddy Scott Ambler scrunches his nose <laughs> up and says, don't call them sprints, they're iterations. Although I think he's softening his stance on that. It's, it's just another cycle. But this idea of being flexible, just because we say two weeks, doesn't mean it's locked in. I've had some teams that start out at four-week sprints, and then three months later, they're doing they're doing one-week sprints, the same team for the same amount of work product. So this is important, and, and they're getting the same quality out the other end. Very important. But yeah, drive-by, drive do me a favor requirements, that's got to stop. And having a transparent, fully visible drive-by bucket 
that even the directors can see, hey, in this bank with probably, I think we had 20 or 30 directors in different areas of the bank that all wanted their pet projects done. And when we produced a bucket like that, which we did, they started seeing who was the biggest offender. Mm. They took it amongst themselves to curb that behavior. It became a competition to see who could have the lowest number of drive-by favors in the bucket in every week. And so it was interesting to see them compete. Um, and then, of course, separating data acquisition and profiling is important. Absolutely. And I, this brings me to um, the last point, though. Never roll your own automation tool. I, I believe this to be true. Invest in a good tool. You have to ask yourself, your customer, the, the people you work for, the company who pays your check, what business are they in? Well, they're in the banking business, they're in the insurance business, they're in the automobile business, whatever the business is. I can guarantee you they're probably not in the software business. If they're in the software business, well, then maybe, maybe. But then the question becomes, does this business that pays your check want to be in the software business, specifically the automation of data vault tooling software business? Because that's what happens. And we've heard numerous accounts from companies in Finland and Germany and Australia and whatever, where they did start out and they were successful for the first year or two with their rolling their own approach. But then it got too big. It got too unwieldy because we're talking about enterprise solutions. There was a problem with one team couldn't roll it out in another country because of the way the software worked. It didn't meet GDPR, PII requirements. You know, this was probably five, six years ago when GDPR was still fresh and new and being redefined every day. But, you know, it, there were other problems with software where the maintenance cycles, they had too many hands in the pie. Somebody would modify a code line in a different country for the automation tool and screw up what was in production you know, on the other end, on halfway around the world. And it becomes a pain and you don't want to do that. Invest in a good tool, invest in the training from that good tool. Now, before we move on to the next topic, I just want to summarize the, the topics that we've covered here for how to move or turn off the old environment and then move to a data vault. So the first one is have a modular approach. The second one is get comfortable. You will run both solutions in parallel. Uh, get your employees trained. That's the third one. The fourth one is establish best practices and, and really develop new ways of working and share it. Be transparent on a wiki. Uh, the fifth one, encourage true agile development in rapid, rapid release. Try to work with two-week sprint cycles. And then if you can get it down, uh, definitely get it down to two hours or four hour turnarounds. And the the sixth one is uh, the team building the data vaults 100% dedicated. No more drive-by, do me a favor requirements. And if you do have them, put them in a separate bucket for everyone to see all the way to the C-level. That should be visible everywhere. Uh, the seventh one is separating data acquisition from data profiling and data profiling away from the actual work of building data warehousing and loading the data vaults and moving data through. Um, those two, data acquisition, data profiling, and the third one, building a warehouse, those, those three things are all their own sprints. The eighth one, never roll your own automation tool. Now that brings us to another question on this topic, which in the remaining few minutes, we're going to spend a little bit of time on. Um, but the question here is, what are the steps to integrate your new data vault solution with your legacy system? I'm, I'm going to say this. There really is probably two ways 
The first is if you're replacing it, replace it in a modular fashion. And if you take the first approach we mentioned, which is solving problems that are not addressed by the legacy, well, then there's no integration there. However, I say that tongue in cheek because there might be some data that the new BI outcomes need to reference that sits in that legacy system. Well, again, that legacy system should have already been made, quote unquote, read only. So you can join to it at the business vault layer or the information mart layer. And that's where the joins are built. Okay. So you can join to it until the data vault has the data needed to pull the answers forward into the information mart and the, in the BI system. Replace it in a modular fashion, scope it in such a way that you are building, building, building. And don't forget, data vault teams get stuck. We talked about this with Sanjay in the last podcast. Don't let your data vault teams get stuck in this analysis paralysis. Oh, we have to load everything to the data vault first before we can put anything into the BI tool. That's a wrong way to go about it. You want to make sure that everything's delivered to the information mart. If it's in the vault, it should be coming out of the vault and going into the information mart layers and onto the analysis tools. And if you replace it in modular fashion, that just means bite-sized chunks. That means proper scoping bite-sized chunks. Stand up the new data vault efforts to meet the existing needs. Tie into old data sets. There were some old calculations at the bank that were being run to balance the books on a monthly or close the books on a monthly basis for audit auditor records. And until we had that financial data in the vault loaded and built, we had to actually leverage the data set in the existing legacy system. We had to join to it. That's what it meant, right? So that's basically it. So don't try to bring that data into the vault. Definitely don't do that because the legacy system's data has been changed, munged, altered by business rules. And the way we process data on the way into the vault, we don't do that until we get data out and put it in the hands of the BI or the information mart or the business layers. That's where we do some of that processing. So we we don't want to, I guess, infect. You're going to shake your heads at this, those of you that are listening, but I'm, I, you don't want to COVIDize or imply COVID to your data vault, all right? It's it's not in, it's not curable. If you take this data set from the old legacy and you stick it in the data vault, you have just infected your data vault with no cure. Don't do that, right? Join to it, that's okay, but don't pull that data into the vault. That's that's the wrong way to do it. Cindy, do you have any final thoughts on this? Um, you should never be afraid to set a code freeze day. Code freeze is code freeze. It's, it's part of what we do with software development. It's going to be critical. Otherwise, you will never be able to turn off your your legacy warehouse. Absolutely. And code freezes are essential to being able to reconcile and fix things and then move things forward in a consistent manner. So we had continuous development and continuous deployment, which at this bank during the seven years, and it worked out well. And again, distributed teams, they had probably 20 of these 50 teams were in India. They actually came to Australia to get trained. And then they went back to India with their skill sets and worked out of the Indian offices. They were third-party consultancy. I won't say who, but but um, it worked out really well for the bank over the years. So that's it. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'm Dan Linstead. And I'm Cindy Meyerson. And we will see you on the flip side.